You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Intersections. I want to spend this last episode of 2020 challenging you as we go into 2021 for anybody who wants to be about changing, um, addressing, confronting racism in this country. I want to give you something to think about and I want to challenge you uh, with this. As we head into 2021, like every year, we have a chance to reset and do things differently. Now, while the virus that's been spreading does not respect dates, as if it's going to just stop spreading because the new year has begun, um, we have a chance, though, to make the changes and not take certain mindsets, attitudes, and behaviors into the next year. If there is one thing that I've learned that I hope we can follow to frame the work that we do, particularly as it relates to racism, is this thing right here. Love is not the primary answer to dismantling racism. Here's why I say this. When you think about anti-black and anti-native racism, for example, it did not begin with hate. And usually we, we, we think about love in contrast to hate. Back then, at the root of this, this thing called racism, at, when, when Europeans encountered Africans and when they encountered um, native people of this land, they didn't see Africans and indigenous people as humans. They saw them as lesser human, subhuman, or even non-human. In fact, we could, we could argue that Africans were treated as non-beings, as instruments for economic prosperity. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it was hate that drove racism in the beginning. Let me give you an example. So think about a, a, a jockey riding a horse in the Kentucky Derby. And from the very beginning, that jockey is riding his horse and and he wants this horse to run faster and faster and faster because if he wins this race or places, there's money involved. There's some, there's some economic prosperity involved. And so as this jockey is riding his horse, he's whipping this horse. He's whipping him, he's whipping him, he's whipping him. Now, this jockey likely loves this horse. He pets him. He talks to him. He walks next to him. He loves this horse. I don't know a jockey that would ride a horse and, and just have a disdain and a hate for him. But he is whipping, literally whipping this horse during these, these races. And some research says that it doesn't necessarily make the horse run faster, but it actually can cause trauma for these horses. But the whipping doesn't necessarily mean he hates them. Same thing with racism in the beginning. Because white folks saw black people, Africans, and indigenous people, they described them as beasts or savages or uh, le lesser, lesser human beings than white folks. And they treated them, as I said, as non-human beings, instruments. There was no need to hate. It was normal for white Americans to enslave 
who they did not even see as human. There was no reason to hate them. That wasn't what was driving. What was driving it was supremacy tied to whiteness and economic prosperity, free, using these humans for free labor. Anti-black hate, that came up as a response to black people asserting agency in resistance to white supremacy. And, and it, it was in response to black people having the audacity to think they were equal to white people when the law and the prevailing ideology said otherwise. So on the slave ships coming from Africa, the insurrections on the slave ships, that may have caused some disdain or even some hate. Now you're, they, they were disrupting, the, they, they had, it had economic implications. Uh, trying to escape slavery, that may have garnered some hate, some, some disdain. Again, economic implications to that. Insurrections on the plantation, the same. And even today, protesting can generate hate in response because now you're bringing awareness to injustices. You're being disruptive and you're forcing people to have to look at society, this society, this country, this nation that so many people love. And that protest is forcing them to have to address or look at or see, acknowledge the, the racial injustices. As a matter of fact, now this is prior to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor this summer, but there's a statistic, a research that, research that shows 63% of whites support protests, but only 46% of white people support protests by black people. That's about a 15% drop almost. Actually, a little more than 15% drop. Now, that may have changed because studies show that since the George Floyd video hit, that there has been a, a dramatic increase in terms of from the white community that believe that racism is a, a serious problem in our country. So it is likely that these statistics may be may change, may be different now. But there's still going to be a disparity there, likely. So, yes, there is hate today. There is hate. You can see it. You can feel it. You can hear it. But even if we love people who hate us, it won't change the overall social structures, laws, policies and cultural messaging that undergird the racist society we live in. I had to learn that myself some years ago. See, it's easy to oversimplify things and talk about love. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, tragedies when we discuss racism. People oversimplify this complex and very nuanced um, idea, invention, there are too many factors involved, too many things at play to just say, let's just love each other. Now, I do believe that love helps in uh, interpersonal relationships, but not so much in structural and institutional racism that perpetuates the disparities that exist along racial lines. You know, most people I know have friends of other races whom they love. Black, white, Asian, Latinx, Muslim, Jewish, you name it. 
Most people I know, especially in in in, in city in the urban areas in cities, say a place like Los Angeles where I live, you, it is very common. Matter of fact, it's uncommon to, to meet someone who does not have uh, friends of other races that they love. And people of color have shown that they have the capacity to love in spite of navigating a racist society. If they couldn't, there'd be a whole lot more violence than the riots that happen as a response to tragic injustices. But the issue of racism still plagues us, even with this love and transracial relationships. If it's about love, then somebody help me out. How do you love a system? How do you love racist structures, racist institutions, racist policies and laws, racist economic system? How do you love a, structure, a social structure or systems that when a, a virus like COVID-19 comes around, that it hits black and brown communities more than any other community and native communities more than any other community. And then we end up dying at a higher rate than say our white brothers and sisters. That means there's something inherently uh, unjust about these systems and social structures. Love won't fix that. Now, love should be a part of the solution, but it's not the answer. That's not the primary focus. I'm, I'm making that argument. And I know there are people, others out there who will agree with me, and there are going to be some who disagree with me as well. I get that. But here's what I challenge people to embrace in 2021. I want you to look forward. I want you to look forward to 2021. Love is not the remedy for ignorance. Education is. And I'm not saying ignorance is the only problem, but I'm saying it is a big issue. More than hate, oftentimes. Ignorance. I mean, there are people who I have relationships with that are not black, that I believe love me and, and I got love for them, but they have said so and done some racist things and, and, and they don't really think that racism is a problem and we, we've gone back and forth. They're not part of the solution. And they don't necessarily hate me or other black folks or brown folks or Asians. But there's some ignorance there. So education is the remedy for ignorance. Now, when I say education, I don't just mean head knowledge. But I'm talking about being immersed in a context culturally, socially, relationally, theologically and academically context outside of your own that can chip away and allow an opening for perspectives, historical accounts and testimonies and stories that will disrupt the toxic thinking that's rooted in ignorance. Now, I'm speaking to everybody. We all need to learn. Like, I have committed myself to learning about um, the Asian American experience, the Latinx experience, the Muslim experience, the Native experience their history, their perspectives, not just my own. But I'm primarily talking to the white community right now because as people of color, we've had no choice 
but to be immersed in white culture and learn from a white perspective and learn from white voices. And so I'm, I'm really talking to my white brothers and sisters out there about learning, immersing oneself in a context other than your own. Not just in a classroom, but it would include a classroom. Right? Because unless love looks like justice, it won't change social structures. Dr. King once said, justice, I may be paraphrasing a bit, justice is what love looks like in public. And Dr. King, in the Civil Rights Movement, called us to return hate with love, to respond to hate with love. Number one, because it's the highest witness for God, for Jesus, love, because God is love. Number two, because it ends or disrupts the cycle of hate. And I believe that we've shown that we can do that in the workplace, in the neighborhoods, in schools. And I say we, I mean uh, African-Americans and, and people of color who had to experience and, and deal with racism. We've shown that we can do that in these spaces. But he, as I am right now, I'm calling for a, uh, not calling for a sentimental love that domesticates us, people who are oppressed uh, and, and, and face perpetual injustices built into society. It domesticates us to not confront the evil, just love, right? But he's talking about, I'm quoting Dr. King, a stern love that would organize itself into collective action to right a wrong. Let me say it again. He says, a stern love is what we need that would organize itself into collective action to right a wrong. In other words, what he's talking about is justice. Dr. King even said in, in his speech, Negroes are not moving too fast. He even said that nonviolence, love, can only exist in the context of justice. He says, the white power structure calls upon the Negro to reject violence, but does not impose upon itself the task of creating necessary social change. It is in fact act asking for submission to injustice. In other words, that power structure is not holding itself accountable. It's not calling itself to address its own issues to cause social change. And he says, this is suicidal. He's not talking about a nonviolence or a love that allows yourself to just be beaten and whipped and killed. He said, this is suicidal to submit to injustice. The education is in people willing to learn about the very structures in place that have caused and sustains the racial disparities in our society to this day. Now, here's the other part about the ignorance. One thing is the ignorance about the social structures, the history. But then there's the ignorance about oneself, one's uh, worldview, one's biases, one's ideologies that he or she has embraced um, that contribute to sustaining status quo. 
It's my opinion that many people need this education in 2021. As I said earlier, we, we made the tragic mistake of oversimplifying racism. We can't continue to do this. We can't continue to think that it's just about loving each other, being nice to each other, or getting along with each other. It's more than that. 2021 has to be the year of dismantling one's own ignorance. You cannot cause change without this discipline, this, this ethic in your life. I'm, I'm telling you right now, we will continue to see the things we've seen over the last few years. We will become numb to it. We will continue to, it will continue to be normalized. The injustices that, we've, that, are, that are more invisible, insidious, will continue to be normal and go unchallenged. Or 2021 is going to look like 2020. And I don't think we want that. I don't think any of us want that. We have to begin to look at our own ignorance, individually and collectively. And address those. How am I contributing to either the problem or the solution? Now, as a man of faith, I don't think this is done on our own. I know there are a lot of people that, that, that will say, why don't we just do, do, the, do the right thing? Just do right. Just do this thing. It's, it's simple. Just be, do right by people. Now we get into the sinful nature of humanity. There's a reason why we, we haven't done this. But I believe that this will require the work of God on our hearts and our minds. And anyone who doesn't agree, I will say this. If it didn't require God and God's spirit, then we would have long figured this thing out and done it by now. This wouldn't be an issue if, if, if humanity could just fix it, could just do it, just do right. See where there's, there are injustices in our society and collectively come together to do right. When you know that there's an economic system that, that causes um, disparities, not just along racial lines, but both gender and, and, and class, socioeconomic status. And you, when you see that and not want to address it and fix it so that all of us or more of us, those who want to, can do well. We are incapable collectively. Now, there may be some individuals, individuals we like to say, that have the grace given to them by God. Like they just, they just, it's just built into them, into their DNA. But just like there's some people who are just naturally compassionate. And others have to work at it. There's some people who are naturally gentle. Others got to work at it. Others are a little more, little, little rough. There's some people who are, who are naturally uh, one way or another. They've been given this grace. It's built into who they are. Maybe they was also shaped and formed by uh, parents or grandparents to be a certain way. So there may be some individuals who are just 
just people. And, and we, we know those people. But collectively, collectively, we're incapable. We need God. We need the Spirit of God to pursue justice and act in just ways. To be indignant towards injustice. We need divine help. And so as a, as a, as a, as a man of faith, in the Christian faith, we understand this is the work of the Spirit. And I teach this. My job is to come to the table every day. And when I say come to the table, the table of fellowship with God. This is where I, I, I meet with God. And what does that mean? The table of fellowship can be prayer, studying God's word, quiet time, even serving, um, anything that can allow me to turn my attention towards God. Worship, praise, thanksgiving, those disciplines. That's what it means to come to the table. And it's at that table in intimate fellowship in those moments. I am in intimate fellowship with God. That's where God begins to do a work in my heart. That's where I'm being changed. And if I do that, if that's a regular part of my life, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, there will be change in me, change that orients me to who God is. And so it's the work of the Spirit continuing to change us on the inside. And I think the church, including church leaders, need this work. This is not just people who do not know Jesus, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, or people who are new to the faith. I'm also speaking to church leaders who can oftentimes be a little arrogant in their, in their, in their, their, their faith or their maturity, be a little self-righteous sometimes. But they need this work too. Because all of us are influenced by our culture. No Christian is pure in their faith. So we all got some things that we got to come and sit to the table with and say, God, check me on this. And so I believe there has to be a rebirth within the church. The church is always talking about a revival and getting people outside the church to, to, to come to know Jesus. No, there needs to be a revival or a rebirth within the church to deconstruct the theology that has been distorted by racist ideology. A lot of things that we've taught and we've preached or have been taught to me and preached to me or taught to me in classes and in, in Bible college and in, in seminary that have racist roots. And so there needs to be a deconstruction there. And until the church is willing to collectively and individually look at its own ignorance, its own participation in sustaining racism, it will continue to provide the fuel for the fire of racism just like it did during the time of slavery and Jim Crow when clergy were the pri were primary voices along with race science clergy were primary voices justifying slavery I made my film I'm going to close with this I made my film Open Wounds to address ignorance I wanted to tell my grandfather's story, my family's story, 
my grandfather's murder in 1953. Telling this story through film and through the book literally has changed my life. It's changed the trajectory of my life. It has um, added to my calling. And I wanted to begin to educate people by telling, by starting with and, and leading with my family's story. The injustice that happened to us, my grandfather being killed in 1953. Now, mind you, before that, in 1933, my great-grandfather was also killed by a racist. In the 60s, I had an uncle in the military who was jumped and beaten by white racist officers and left the military with PTSD from that. And so I made this film to address ignorance, to educate, to invite people to come to the table, the table that I'm setting, the table where, where we're going to sit and, 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 and learn, learn from someone other than, than those who look like you, who are echoing what you already agree with, to challenge you. And talk about, you know, in this film, intergenerational trauma. That's something that I've had to, to address my ignorance of about myself, the trauma that I carry. That's what this film did for me. And so I invite people to begin to look at the ignorance within you that you carry in your mind, but also in your body. You Maybe asking the question, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep feeling this way when this happens? There may be some things that you may need to, to address. And I would say if you don't, if you're not willing to do that, you're going to repeat some things. You're going to repeat much of 2020 in 2021 and not know why. So I invite you to watch my film, Open Wounds. You can go to openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwounds, O-P-E-N-W-O-N-D-S-D-O-C.com. And then I invite you, I ask that you would pre-order the book, Open Wounds on Amazon. You can type in Open Wounds, Phil Allen. It'll come up. It's up for pre-order right now. The book comes out. It will be released February 9th, 2021. As I said, this is the last episode of the, of the year. We'll take next week off and we'll start fresh January 4th. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I hope that you come back and you continue to listen to Intersections. I'm excited for the guests that we have, the list of guests that we have coming um, in 2021. It's going to be a good ride. It's going to be a good year. I'm grateful for you listening. And thank you once again for parking with me at the Intersections. <laughs>